Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. For me, it is about building a groundswell of support from Oregonians. I think even in these states where you're seeing really tight restrictions on abortion access, the need for abortion is not going to go away. To me, universal access to care means that everybody has access to affordable health care when they need it at an affordable price, and that care is quality care. We are beyond peak oil, right? So we need, no, we know we have to increase our energy sources. And the only way to do that is through renewable energy. All right, folks, today we were excited to interview Representative Andrea Salinas. Representative Salinas represents Lake Oswego in the state legislature, and she's a candidate for Oregon's new 6th Congressional District. Her background is, you know, she's the daughter of an immigrant from Mexico. She graduated from UC Berkeley, and she's worked at the legislative level, both federally and in Oregon, for many, many years. She used to work for Senator Harry Reid, former Senate Majority Leader. She worked for Congressman Pete Stark, who is a sort of quirky, well-known congressman from California, and Oregon's Congresswoman Darlene Hooley. Then she worked in legislative advocacy in Oregon, worked for a lot of different progressive groups and organizations, became a member of the legislature. And as we talk about in this episode, as a member of the legislature, very, very rapidly became a member of leadership, someone holding a gavel of a powerful legislative committee put in charge of challenging topics and issue areas. So she's got a track record of success. And she's running in what I think is probably the most interesting Democratic primary in the country right now, which is Oregon's 6th Congressional District. We talk about it at the end. Millions and millions of dollars are being spent in this race, and the dynamic is fascinating. So, Alex, my question for you is, what were the highlights of the episode or things that you learned in this conversation? Yeah, well, first of all, Ben, I do want to say it's good to have a Republican and Democrat back on the show, because I know <laughs> last week we had two Democrats hosting. So... <laughs> You know, it's good to have a conservative and a progressive again instead of two people from your side. But no, I, I agree. And I mean, it's funny because almost all of our recent interviews have been with candidates on the D side from the sixth district. But I mean, it's, it's literally unprecedented what's happening right now. Like the amount of money being spent on this primary is absurd. And I mean, Selena's is raising a lot of money also, but it's just any normal candidate, that would be a lot of money that she's raising. But just with the amount of outside support that Carrick Flynn is getting like it's I mean the race is so, I mean well I guess we'll see what happens but it's super interesting even just to hear like I actually my, my favorite part and you sort of stole my question at the end but I kind of wanted to ask her right like she came into this race I saw her as the clear front runner I think most people probably thought she was going to win unless some sort of self-funded business person came in you know but then now this race has been there's literally like, I mean, international money basically coming in in terms of the Sam Bank Friedman, like his company, I think used to be based in Hong Kong. Now it's based in the Bahamas and he's donating like literally over $10 million. You have Cody Reynolds too, who I believe loaned himself $2 million. You have Matt West, who's put in like four or 500,000, who's also fundraising pretty well. The race is just bonkers. And I even thought her personal experience of like, you know, and all the national attention it's gotten to, right? There's been political articles, there's been New York Times articles, there's been articles on CNN, like the head of the Democratic, like one of their major Hispanic groups, like basically blasted Carrick Flynn and some of the other, what's going on with the House Majority Pact, like, and just kind of even hearing her insights into how she's feeling, I thought was really interesting. So for me, I, I, I thought that was a really interesting and revealing aspect of the conversation. But before we even get to that, 
we touch on some of the most important policy issues facing Congress. We talk about abortion, what America looks like post Roe v. Wade, what healthcare policy looks like post Obamacare, climate change. Alex, you asked a series of foreign policy questions where I think you were surprised to see the alignment that you had with um, Representative Salinas and your own views. So there was some interesting pieces of the interview even before we get to the politics of the race. So I hope folks enjoy the episode. Alex, any parting thoughts? No, just thanks again for, for t- I was going to say, this. I, I guess we do have to interview Cody Reynolds and you know all the other 20 people who are running, so for the six. Uh, but no, we're working on diversifying the guests. Yeah, I just think it's really cool the amount of insight we've been able to give into this race specifically, which I think is really important both for Republicans and Democrats. But yeah, besides that, thanks again for listening. Make sure to give us five stars and yeah. And on that note, I will say we welcome audience suggestions. And several of our guests we've reached out to because people said, hey, you should talk to X. And we've got a couple of exciting ones lined up in the next couple of weeks that we're excited to have. So if you have ideas for who would be interesting to talk to or you're running for office yourself, feel free to reach out and uh, we'll try to make it happen. But thanks, everyone, and enjoy the interview with Representative Andrea Salinas. All right, Representative Andrea Salinas, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. We're very grateful to have you on the podcast. And when I was preparing for the conversation today, I was looking through your background. And the first thing that jumped out that I wanted to ask you about was your experience working in Congress, Um, not as a member of Congress, but as a staffer. You worked for Senator Harry Reid, Representative Pete Stark, some big personalities in the national political world. So What was the experience like working for Senator Reid, for example, when you were a staffer? So it was interesting. I started off at the front desk. I had interned for Senator Feinstein my last semester at Cal in her district office, and I really got the bug, I think, for politics. It was, you know, at the time, the most expensive Senate campaign. She was running against Michael Huffington in 1994. And so when I started working for Senator Reid, I started off at the front desk and, you know, it was really interesting. We had these staggered shifts. Right. So I would come in sometimes at like 7 a.m. and then work till like three or four. And then sometimes you'd work 10 to seven because he really liked to make sure that his phones were being answered live all the time. And so every other week. Yeah. But it was interesting. So as a you know, as a young staffer answering the phones from, you know, for a senator from Nevada, when I'd work the 7 a.m. shift and then it's like, you know, what? 4am out in Nevada, I'd get these calls from people and you could hear the slots and the chatbots <laughs> chinging, dinging in the background and people really upset over their social security benefits. And I need to tell this. And I was like, it's 4am your time. Maybe you should go to bed <laughs> and leave the casino. So no, but, uh, but in terms of the personalities, he was a big personality, but he had a very mild approach and I appreciated that about him. And obviously he was much more moderate than some of the other, you know, than the congressman. But yeah, I always felt like I could represent his views well. So it was it was fun to work with him. And then, yeah, and then I moved up to become a legislative correspondent where I really did get to dive into the issues a bit more. And it was a good, a really good training for me to move on to bigger policy agenda items. I've got to ask one fun Senator Reid question, which I guess actually if he was hearing this, he would probably be upset that I said this was fun. UFOs. I know that was like a big topic for him (laughs) when he was in the Senate, called for the release for all these documents. Did you ever get to work on that issue or no? I didn't know. <laughs> okay. And if it's classified, you know, we'll, we'll just be like, you didn't get to work on it. So. But yeah, I mean, you know, Yucca Mountain and, and yes, and we actually would get a lot of constituents calling in about that and writing in too. Yeah. 
but no, I never, yeah, I never worked on it. <laughs> I was going to say for our, for our younger listeners, Harry Reid, well known for a lot of, he was majority leader of the Senate. So very powerful man, but I think in historical terms will be remembered for probably his role in Obamacare, probably the, the UFO issue as a quirk. But also if you go back to, I think it was like 2006, he was the first real political figure who encouraged Barack Obama to run for president, which obviously changed the course of history in a lot of different ways. So shifting from your national experience to the state experience, I'm going to ask a selfish question here as a, as a candidate for the state legislature. You rose up really quickly in House leadership. You basically were appointed to the office and then almost immediately were chairing a major policy committee in the healthcare committee. You were tapped to be chair of redistricting, which is one of the most challenging committees. Um, I think you were majority whip as well. So what was what's the secret sauce for how you were able to so quickly assume those large responsibilities in the state legislature? So I think it was a few things. I think I had been helping to pass legislation from an advocate perspective for a while, right? I worked with so many different organizations, kind of from all positions and all sides, right? So I knew the healthcare issue really well. I worked on, people didn't know this, but when when the state was trying to stand up, cover Oregon, I was there essentially asking a lot of the same questions that reporters were asking, like, this doesn't feel sound, this doesn't feel solid, what's going on? At the same time, we were, I was representing SEIU and we were trying to figure out how are we going to get a good number of their home care workers into the exchange, given, you know, it could help bolster the exchange in terms of, of its solvency and viability, but then also give good benefits. So we were trying to work out something with Governor Kitzhaber but it had to be a solid program. So I was asking a lot of the same questions, like what's going on behind the curtain here? But what I would say, so so I'd been working on healthcare since 2012. I had been working with the environmental organizations since really kind of my time since with Congresswoman Hooley. So I, you know, I'd worked on it from 06 to 08, kind of from the federal perspective, but really started to get to know a lot of the players in the energy sector, as well as the environmental world. And yeah, and so worked on a lot of different policy pieces. And so I think not only did I have the right policy chops, I had the right relationships with folks who were on the advocate side and, you know, kind of the lobbying side, but as well as with like a lot of the legislators. And I think I also had the kind of the organizing and the ability to help help other legislators to accomplish their legislative goals and agenda as well. And so, yeah, so I think the combination of all of that, and I do think, I think the speaker had told me at one point, you know, you have a very similar background to myself. I was an advocate when I came here, and I think you really do get a big breadth and scope of experience in order to help you lead in that role. And then I think, I didn't know this at the time, but, you know, when um, Mitch Green, like the chair of the House Healthcare Committee, when I first got on, I didn't realize how excited he was for my candidacy for the appointment. And he told me, he was like, let me know how I can help you. And I was like, okay, he really was. And so the first thing he did was he tasked me with this task force that was universal access to care, which they've now kind of extended to try to bring all the players around the table to figure out how do we get to expanding access to healthcare for, you know, lower cost, better quality, better health outcomes. 
And we took the, you know, the better part of maybe like nine months and brought a lot of the players around the table. He thought the report, I went back and looked at the report recently. And it is, it's a really good report that can show you some of the steps that can get you to a single payer system or something that could work better for actual patients. And I think the work that I did there also was enough for him to, and the speaker to believe that I had the chops to basically take over the gavel. And then once I took the PERS vote and realized I needed to be in the rooms when some of these decisions and deal makings were happening, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, I need to be in leadership to be able to either push back when I don't think my leadership is doing the right thing or you know, to be able to just have a bigger voice for my constituents. And so that's when I decided to run for assistant majority leader. And then, yeah, and then right before I stepped down, when I decided to run, I was house um, whip. And that but also, yeah, I just think, you know, helping people get elected, helping them get their agendas passed, you know, I've kind of been doing it all, right? Knocking on doors, making phone calls, helping, again, helping the caucus, as well as helping figure out how to put policy packages together. Fascinating. Uh, right, yeah, and so, you know, and you just talked a lot about putting policy together, helping to move things forward, kind of innovating, creating new policy. I feel like in terms of that happening in Congress right now, you know, it's happening a little, things are moving, right? But very likely after this midterm election, Republicans will almost certainly take back the House. They will almost certainly take back the Senate. It would frankly be historical if they didn't. So of course, Congress will go into gridlock. So I'm just kind of curious in general, what's kind of your reasoning for wanting to run for Congress and not kind of staying on the state and local level where, you know, things are moving. Whereas if you move over to Washington, things will be very gridlocked probably for at least another four to six years. Yeah. So I think, you know, when I worked for Senator Reid and when I worked for Pete Stark and for Pete, I did tax and trade policy for his Ways and Means Committee, which and Social Security. And those were some pretty big issues. But we, you know, it was under the Clinton administration and the Bush administrations. Republicans control both sides, right? It was the Republican Revolution of 95, the Newt Gingrich, you know, big takeover, and the Senate had just swung back red, too. So the entire time I was on Capitol Hill, I we were under... Republican-controlled Congresses. And I think the thing that I, as a staffer, I mean, obviously I have to, you know, pitch, you have to pitch for your bosses, but I think the thing as a staffer that I learned is that there are alliances and allegiances that you can form. Like, you know, when Enron happened and I was, again, doing tax and a lot of banking stuff for Pete, you know, we reached out to Senator McCain and Senator Levin to figure out how do we really account for employee stock options, right? So that the bottom doesn't fall out when you have an Enron type of scandal and that we really are accounting for this, right? It was just a good consumer banking, you know, accounting principles kind of thing. But yeah, so I think, and I saw my bosses always do this, right? It doesn't get reported all the time. I think the media really likes the division, how, you know, nothing gets done in a bipartisan way. But honestly, it almost always does, right? I saw Congressman Dick Armey and Pete Stark really work on expanding benefits to to kids, right? Around the, not the child care tax credit, but also um, the children's health insurance program, right? Expanding that. Mm-hmm. Because again, and that, you know, that was a while back, but I do think, so to answer your question more directly, Alex, I do think I have the personality and the stamina to really reach out and figure out who those people are who maybe, you know, aren't going to come with me to to pass a Green New Deal or to pass, you know, Medicare for all. But what are some of the things that we can, where I can meet them, where they are, they can meet me where I am and where we can mutually benefit Americans all around, right? And not worry about 
right now who's getting credit for this, but just really delivering for mm. people. And I feel like if that's what all of us continue to kind of focus on is how do we deliver for people who, who I feel like frequently want the same thing, right? It's just like, how do we get, how do we get there? And I do think I have that kind of personality to kind of be that kind of voice in Congress. So I'm excited to kind of take it. And I feel like I've been that role and that person in, in the state legislature. And I feel like I can do the same thing. And like you said, knowing that it, it can be frustrating, it could be gridlock, but I think there are smaller things that can be done and certainly delivering for this new congressional district where I think, you know, agriculture is going to be big. And I think, you know, working families still have issues that they care about. And I, yeah, I think I can be that voice. Gosh, yeah, no, that's, it's definitely refreshing and interesting to hear people running. I know Joe Biden won the 6th Congressional District by about 16 points. I mean, I would say, I guess you may consider it swingy, but I think most people would consider it to be safer. And not to put you on the spot too much, because you answered the second part of the question I was going to ask, but is there like a Republican in mind, either, I guess, from Oregon, you have only one option, you'd work with Representative Benz, uh, <laughs> but maybe a national Republican who you're like, oh, I think they're doing really interesting work on this. And I would love to be a part of that just because, you know, you talked about kind of working across the aisle, kind of deal making and things like that. If no one comes to top of mind, I don't, don't want to put you on the spot with that. But just yeah, No, 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 no. I mean, I've thought about this naturally. Yeah. And I don't know anybody kind of, you know, outside of Oregon who I have been following necessarily, but I would reach out to um, to Congressman Benz, you know, I worked with him and we never, I don't think we ever saw eye to eye, but I would go to him. You know, I was working for the Pew Charitable Trusts on the campaign for America's wilderness. And we really were looking at the Antiquities Act to get some national monuments and the Oahe was one of them. We really wanted to protect the Oahe Canyon lands. And obviously this is in, you know, and at the time it was Senator Benz's district. So I went to him and I told him, right. I mean, so that's the kind of person that's how I work, right? If I'm going to do something in your district, I'm going to go talk to you. And he even invited me on his, uh, his radio broadcast at one time. I was like, I don't know. He's like, no, you're smart. You like enviro issues. We're, we're kind of the same. And I was like, yeah, but you're really smart. So, uh, but anyway, so (laughs) very flattering to hear that from him, but yeah, I've, you know, I've worked with him in the past, so he would be my natural first step of course. And then to see who else he thinks, you know, I could reach out to as well, but yeah. And I think he serves on the natural resources committee as well. So naturally I would, yeah, I would reach out to him. So that is a a good transition to the next portion of our conversation where we want to ask about specific policy issues. So to start with something that I think is actually on a lot of voters' mind right now is there's a New York Times article, and I'm guessing you probably agree with this framing, where they basically said whether it's pro-choice advocates or pro-life advocates, virtually everyone agrees that the Supreme Court is likely to strike down Roe v. Wade and create new precedent of some kind. And likely, the likely outcome is that the decision about abortion access gets referred to the states. Before we talk about policy or Congress's role, you know, I know you've been working on reproductive health care access for a long time. What does America look like in a post-Roe world where the decision is left to the states? Like what, what, are the, what are the challenges of that kind of a model? Well, I think we're starting to see the challenges of it right now, right, with states putting restrictions on abortion access. And we have already felt it. I know, you know, from our Planned Parenthood clinics to our private clinics, we are going to see people, you know, Idaho. It's not like, I think the the need for abortion and reproductive health care is not going to suddenly go away, right? Women still make up 50% of the population, you know, according to the Guttmacher Institute, I think their last survey in 2020 or 2021, 70%. 
of Americans still feel like the right to abortion is the right thing. So that's a big percentage, right? So I think even in these states where you're seeing really tight restrictions on abortion access, the need for abortion is not going to go away. And, and safe, I would hope it would be safe and legal where people sought their abortion care, but that's going to mean the states that are still standing to protect the right to abortion. And so I think what I was about to say is we're already seeing an influx of patients here in Oregon. And I think, you know, other states that keep it legal and safe will have the same challenges. And so I think being able to um, help women pay for and access the abortion service that they're seeking is going to be a challenge for states because, you know, a few, a handful of state, you know, 20 states can't take on the other 30 states abortion care needs. Totally. And what I've been thinking about is like what, what the, what the ultimate impact seems likely to me is like, if you're a person with means and you have some money, you will be able to get on a plane and fly to California or Oregon. But if you're low income and you're in a position where you need to have an abortion, you might not have that opportunity. And that's a pretty scary scenario that frankly could become relatively commonplace Oh, absolutely, Ben. And this, this is what really frightens me as well. And I know, you know, we, there are funds that have been set up to help women pay for their travel and overnight expenses, but, you know, going back to kind of, you know, perspective is everything. If you, you know, I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's a pretty high percentage. Most abortions are from women who already have children. And so if you're, you're a single mom and you need abortion care and you're working, you're not going to be able to take time off work to, you know, fly from Texas to Oregon or California to get that care. You're just not. And especially if you have kids who are in school, you need to care for your kids. It, yeah. I mean, it is really frightening. And we're already, you know, we were already seeing people going from Texas to Oklahoma. Now Oklahoma is shutting their down their abortion care. That means people are going to have to travel even farther. So yeah. So it is going to be like you said, it's going to really affect BIPOC, women of color, tribal women disproportionately, and also low-income women and people who don't have access to, to the means for, like you just said, for travel, for, you know, to, to be able to leave their state. So to ask a policy question on this, and, and you know, as Alex mentioned, Alex obviously is strongly pro-life, and most of his party is. And I think I'm still holding out hope that Democrats will hold on to at least one of the chambers. But I, I do agree with Alex that the outlook does not look good for Democrats. What if you're a member of Congress, what could you do or what do you think Congress could do collectively to address the issue of abortion access? Or do you kind of assume that this is going to be off the table until there's, you know, uh, Democratic majorities in all chambers and in the White House? Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping it's not as you know, you you both probably know what is it the the Women's Health Protection Act it passed the House it went over to the Senate they couldn't get cloture to stop a filibuster so it's you know it's likely not going to have a vote in the Senate. That would have been a great first step to be able to protect both providers and patients to provide the care and then to receive the abortion care and not putting any restrictions on that abortion care. I think, so if that's not going anywhere, what I would like to see kind of getting back to, we can't let states 
be crippled by this. What I would like to see is some kind of equitable funding, right? If you have residents of your state who are seeking care in other states, I get it if that's what you want to do with your state legislature, but it's not going to prevent the movement and seeking the care from your residents to other states. So what I would like to see is some, some kind of equitable funding under Title X. So I want to circle back to a little bit about healthcare since you mentioned it earlier. So you had, of course, Obamacare was passed. You had some Democrats who were opposed to Obamacare, but of course, they're probably gone from Congress at this point. Maybe there's like one or two people who are still there who opposed Obamacare. And of course, Obamacare, the GOP talked about for many years, they were unable to appeal it. Now Democrats are able to actually use the issue against the GOP saying they want to repeal Obamacare. It's more popular now. I feel like though the sort of, and, and I've been very clear on the podcast, I think Republican policy on healthcare is a joke. We basically don't really offer any policy on healthcare, which is why Democrats always drive the conversation. I do feel like in terms of not sort of the Democratic Party in general, I guess kind of kind of the more moderate and mainstream Democrats that the conversation on the left is sort of stalled when it comes to healthcare. I feel like at this point, it's actually a little bit more like GOP policy where, you know, there's like, there's very wide gaps between sort of like the idea and then the policy. Specifically there, I'm talking about universal healthcare. I feel like that's really the only thing Democrats are talking about. And there's not kind of like, and obviously that, I mean, it, it didn't happen. It's not going to happen anytime soon, at least on the national level. I'm sort of curious just because, you know, obviously this is an issue you worked on in Oregon of what do you see as, you know, kind of policy areas that you think Democrats can address when it comes to healthcare? Like what would your top priorities be on that issue? So I want to take the steps that get us to universal access to care. And for me, and we had a hearing on this, I think it was this past year. And I, and I hold out the belief that one day we are going and, you know, to me, universal access to care means that everybody has access to affordable health care when they need it at an affordable price. And, and that care is quality care that improves their health outcomes. That's what that means to me. So we can get there in many different forms. We can get there under a single payer system, which to me is like, oh, right? That, <laughs> right. That would be great, right? But we can get there in other ways too. We can start to look at the system and maybe we don't do it on a dime where we can flip the switch and make sure that everybody right now who it's not affordable, it's not accessible, right? They don't have enough clinics in their area and they're not getting the right quality where it changes on a dime. But what I keep saying is, if I can move the needle for even a segment of the population, I want to do that. And if that means having to work with the system that we have with all of its flaws that are there, then let's figure out how do we do that, right? So, you know, we have this insurance-based market-based system that doesn't feel like, yeah, I think there are lots of changes that Obamacare could use right now. You know, putting in a public option could be one of them. I know people get really nervous about that. That's further entrenching what we're doing, but that could also start to bring down the cost of premiums for people who currently have insurance who are saying it's unaffordable. I'm not accessing my healthcare because it's not affordable. So what I keep saying is think about the people on the ground. Think about the small businesses who are trying. And that's the system we have right now is through, you know, a lot of employer sponsored healthcare. That's the system we have. So if that's the system we have, how can we start to take the 
smaller steps to march toward that universal access to care. So is it looking at what the benefit plans are? Is it trying to figure out, does Medicare need a change to it, right? And then and then within that, where are the funding mechanisms and the payers coming from? So, and I think there's a lot of wiggle room within this, but right now we know the price keeps going up for folks and that's just untenable. And so we need to work on that if we're not gonna be able to flip the switch. Totally. I'm noticing in our questions here, <laughs> which is like, this is this is a good like metaphor for US politics, but like our premises, there's this really big problem, but Congress probably won't be able to address all of it. So what could they do? And so our, my next question is about climate policy and Democrats have, progressive Democrats have campaigned on the Green New Deal. And Biden in some way proposed his own version of the Green New Deal and we couldn't get it past the Congress. We got an infrastructure bill past the Congress, which is great and does have some climate policy embedded in it. But the Green New Deal as a package, as an idea, seems probably dead for the foreseeable future outside massive political transformation that doesn't seem likely. That being said, we also know climate change is an incredibly time sensitive issue where we're already seeing and feeling the effect. Like today is Earth Day. So for my- Right, Earth Day, happy was, Earth Day. Yeah. Happy Earth Day. I posted about how like, when I think about climate change, what I think about is the 117 degree heat dome, droughts throughout the state of Oregon, melting snowpacks, you know, wildfires that are bigger and scarier than ever before. So like it's already here. So the, I guess the two pieces that I'm putting together in this question that I'm hoping you can help us think through is like one, scope of the problem is really big and bad and it's already here. And two, I fear that Congress has proven that it is incapable of addressing the scope of the challenge with the speed and resources necessary to address it. So given that dynamic, what do you think is going to happen? What is your role in trying to shift the dial on climate change so that we can respond with the scale necessary to, you know, preserve our environment? So I think, again, kind of going back to meeting people where they are, I think a big part of the debate and the discussion and the divide is over, you know, the winners and losers, right? Mm -hmm. So I think the best thing for us to do as a nation is to get people excited about the winning part first, right? To get them to buy in that we actually, and I was talking to some folks yesterday, we are beyond peak oil, right? So our fossil fuel reserves are, are on the downward slope, right? So we need, no, we know we have to increase our energy sources. And the only way to do that is through renewable energy. So why wouldn't we just start to build that infrastructure today, right? Without change, and you don't even need to change anything right now, but just start to build that infrastructure in a way that gets people excited about actually contributing to this new economy with cleaner jobs. And I think that giving something, giving people something to believe in, then it doesn't have to be about the, you know, you know, you don't have to buy into the environment, but we're going to start creating these jobs. We know that, you know, we're beyond peak fossil fuel. Let's start preparing for that, right? Preparing for that world. We know that we're hitting, like you just said, these huge climate domes, you know, these heat waves, these snow in April, um, you know, kinds of, right? Ice storms that hurt our crops. I mean, I'm hearing about grapes and asparagus and all these things in the sixth congressional district. And so what is it that we're going to do so that that the infrastructure is there. So let's, we could just take that piece alone and try to catch up with some of our, you know, European competitors on this. I keep saying Oregon has some of the best 
offshore wind in the world. I had a, it does. And like, we could be competing with Scotland and yeah, all these other countries, the East coast already has a few offshore wind projects. I had a project. Um, I had a capital investor from Boston who came out here. We could have gotten two offshore wind turbines off the coast of Coos Bay, but we needed a power purchase agreement and that deal kind of, we needed it through the state legislature. What, what and, is it? What's a power purchase agreement? It means that our energy companies, we would have to force our energy companies to pay a little bit more per kilowatt hour for that renewable energy. I see. Right. right. And it's going to be those federal investments like that, that are going to spur it. But at the same time, people are going to be creating more jobs. Like it would have been, it would have started in Portland. Vigor would have been um, producing and manufacturing the turbines. It would have been shipped out down the Columbia, picked up in Astoria. A barge takes it from Astoria. So jobs in Astoria, jobs in Portland, down to Coos Bay, Coos Bay, more construction, right? So that's the kind of thing that you have to get people excited about. And I think we were, I think we ended up running out of time. I think it was a short session. So there were a lot of things around it, but we never made the investment and the capital investor pulled out. So, but it's things like that, that the federal government can come in and be like, yeah, let's start investing right now, creating these jobs, getting some of our economies and our economies that, you know, have lost out in different natural resource ways, right. Mm -hmm. To kind of start seeing the new opportunities because there are opportunities here. And that's what I keep saying. We need to focus on the opportunities first to get people to buy in to turning the corner, right. It's just turning the corner. It, you know, it's like yeah. every phase of our country when we've had to see like kind of the new vision, but it, when we get people to buy in and they're actually doing the jobs, they're working on those, you know, windmills out in Sherman and Wasco County, but let's not have them come from Texas. Let's have, let's train them right here in Oregon. Let's make sure our workforce here in Oregon knows how to do this stuff and that we have, but it will take, like I said, that federal investment. And I think that is a critical piece and we need to roll it out nationwide because I do think every state in this country could actually benefit from this. I love what you just said, Representative, because it, you're sort of framing addressing climate change as an economic development opportunity, which to me, Alex, that's speaking Republican language to Republican legislators. Do you think that's a potential, like one of the things we talk about on this show often is like, well, when the timber economy died, we didn't really replace it. And so there's, you know, economic devastation in places like Coos Bay, for example. So Alex, do you think that's a viable, is there a world in which Republican, the Republican Party and Republican lawmakers themselves embrace economic development portion of climate action? Or do you think it's too divisive? Mm -hmm. I mean, potentially, I think it probably comes down to right? Like speed of implementation with any of this stuff, right? I mean, I feel like the, just kind of in general, economic displacement issues always sound easy, which I'm, I'm not saying that's what you said, representative, but I feel oh, like yeah. in general, when people talk about it, right? Like, oh, we'll move all the coal miners in, you know, West Virginia <laughs> to become, you know, they'll build windmills or whatever. I, I mean, it just, it never works out that easily, but Potentially, yeah, I think that's an area of, right, I mean, Republicans talk about combating climate change all the time through free markets, free enterprise, innovation, and things like that. Uh, and I know specifically in terms of competing with China with, uh, I don't know as much about wind power, but with solar power in particular, that's like a big issue, yep. uh, even just disregarding climate change, just focusing on the technology and the batteries and things like that themselves. Yep. Like That's a huge issue when it comes to US-China, you know, competition, mm -hmm. supply chains, manufacturing, and things like that. So. Yeah, I think there's definitely a number of areas for overlap and things like that. So hmm. it's well, interesting. Alex, that's a good transition to your foreign policy question. 
Well, thank you, Ben. You lined me up perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> so representative, I'm curious, uh, first to kind of start and I'll kind of do two or three different foreign policy questions, but sort of, you know, there's, there's a lot going on in the world right now, right? We have an invasion of Ukraine, you know, President Vladimir Putin ordered troops, Russian troops over the border. I guess everybody basically, but the intelligence agencies thought this wasn't really going to happen. Then of course it did. You know, we have that crisis ongoing right now. Yeah. You know, the U.S.-China relationship continues to escalate both, I would say, not on a military level, but definitely on an economic level uh, on a yearly basis, right? You had, you know, President Trump put a bunch of tariffs on different Chinese products. And at least at this point, the Biden administration has kept most of, if not almost all of the tariffs. Just kind of curious in terms of, you know, uh, looking at these issues, kind of seeing things get maybe a little bit more hectic on the world stage, I think is a good way to put it. Kind of your view on what should American foreign policy look like? Like how should America use its power across the world, whether that's militarily or diplomatically? Obviously that's a really big question for just one response. So maybe you just kind of riff on that a little bit, I'd be curious. Yeah, so I would say, you know, I think, I think being cautious, right? I do think Russia, the, the Russia situation, the Ukraine situation is not like other military and geopolitical encounters as we've had and we've known for a long time, right? It is, even though, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan were really big and, you know, problems in the Middle East have been big for a long time. This is, you know, this really could be a global crisis. So I would say, I think proceeding with caution feels right. I would say making sure that we work in a multilateral fashion with our allies. I think really trying to figure out the, you know, the UN Security Council issue and really working at the United Nations level. For me, military engagement is should always be a last resort. I mean, I have seen, again, this was when I was a staffer, but, you know, I went out to different military posts where I saw how we treat our current military, right? The housing is insufficient. There are holes in roofs. I mean, the way we treat our military families is not sufficient. And so for me, it's like, can we actually give our branches of military the due respect that they need and those kinds of funds before we start deploying, you know, additional arms and, you know, and engaging ourselves in something that, you know, could be really harmful and, and hurt our, our troops. But yeah, so for me, it's always about like, again, Americans and the people who, who are serving. So yeah, so I would say, let's be cautious around that. I think around the China issue. So as I was mentioning earlier, I think the, you know, I served as a, the tax and trade policy advisor to Congressman Stark and we have been going down this route with China for years. I was there when we we uh, gave China at the time it was called most favored nation status, and then they entered mm-hmm. the the World Trade Organization. And we were aware of a lot of the problems that we were going to encounter with China. Right there, there's all the piracy issues and the intellectual property rights issues, and the, yeah, the fact that China cheats, they just cheat, yep. right? And so. I think we do need to get, you know, take take our stand. But again, given that China is part of the World Trade Organization, we also need to get back to a diplomatic view with trade as well and be better allies so that we actually, because China doesn't just cheat with us, right? They cheat worldwide. <laughs> so can, yeah. is there a way that we could figure this out? 
multilaterally to hold China accountable because they should be incurring, you know, different sanctions and repercussions, especially around trade. And then in the long run, it will help America's economy and America's jobs through, our, you know, actually enforcing our different trade agreements. But until we can do that in a way that is global, it's going to be really hard for the U.S. to unilaterally do that. So, so I do think it's going to take, you know, a different, you know, kind of multifaceted approach on that one. But yeah, I would say, um, yeah, it's frustrating for me because I know, you know, our, our, our Columbia's and our Intel's, you know, some of our largest companies here in Oregon, I think, end up being hurt by that. Yeah, no, and that's that's actually when you know I was working in DC politics that we hear from some of these companies, right? Is that they are basically forced to toe the line completely by the Chinese government when it comes to public statements, when it comes to editing, because which again I don't think they should do, but I think actually their response is somewhat warranted when I said about it. They say, Alex, that's because the U.S. government isn't doing anything to stand up for us in China. Right. And I was like, I've actually never thought about that. That's kind of interesting, and yeah, that leads me. To my next question, I'm you know really interested just because I mean you worked you worked on these issues. Is where do you think that fine line kind of is between human rights and then economic interests? And I'll, I'll give you two examples. One, I think it's been really easy for people to talk more purely about this issue when it comes to Russia, just because the economic consequences. I mean, yeah, the gas, you know, the it, the uh, the oil production certainly doesn't help from a gas perspective, but really Russia does not produce that much that your everyday American actually uses. Now, when it comes to China, of course, a lot of our major components, major supply chains, very important industries, right? I mean, masks during the, you know, right. we couldn't even get medical workers masks during the COVID crisis because they're all made in China. And it's, right. there's pretty ample evidence that they were withholding masks from us on purpose to basically hurt the United States. So my question sort of is, and again, more, more philosophical is where do you kind of see that fine line between, right? We need to support our economic interests. Oregon has a big pension fund that it has invested in Chinese stocks, which, you know, of course we want to have good pensions for our teachers, firefighters, et cetera. But then we also want to care about things like the Uyghurs and persecuted Christians, persecuted Muslims, national security issues. Where do you kind of view that line or how do you kind of think about those sorts of things? Yeah, so this is interesting because this is going to be a hard question for me, given that my so super easy to answer in two minutes. Right? <laughs> exactly. So Congressman Stark actually was we worked very closely with was it Congressman Wolf from Virginia, a Republican. So when oh, we yeah, Frank Wolf is the man. Yeah, he's, yes, he's great on these. Yeah, exactly. And so Pete and Frank were very closely allied on our trade agreements. And so, and how you would do the debates in con and how you still, I think they still do it this way is you'd have, you know, Republican for Democrat for, and then Republican against Democrat against, and you do this round Robin of speeches on the floor for any given debate. And so I would help to manage floor time uh, for my member of Congress. So I got to you know, work very closely with a lot of members and kind of their, you know, and learn about their views. And so the human rights issue, so I'm trying to figure out like, okay, where was Pete and where does Pete end and Andrea begin also, <laughs> right? Because my own views around this. And, and, and you're right, like Congressman Wolf was really passionate about the human rights issue. And I, and as a feeling kind of empathic person, naturally, I was there as well, right? Yes, we have to, you know, and I think actually at the time, Nancy Pelosi was the same way, right? She has a lot of Chinese constituents. We saw the Falun Gong being her, right? Religious mm -hmm. persecution, yeah. Christians, right? We were, yeah. So from the humanitarian side, it was awful, but 
it felt like, again, nothing is going to be done unless we take a more global approach and really get our other developed nations to address this with us, right? The U.S. is not going to unilaterally, you know, bully China into treating their people well and to giving them, you know, the same kind of rights that, you know, prevent them from having, you know, slave factories out in, what was that, in like the Western portion of China. And yeah, I mean, they really, Mm -hmm. there are some egregious things that they do and it's not, and it's not fair in terms of competition by any means, right? Because there is pretty much slave labor. But when it comes to our industries and our workers, I feel like they're, like you just said, Alex, it is a fine line, but I feel like we also probably have data now that we may not have had before that can help direct us and help us figure out where we actually overlap, especially in certain sectors and where we can actually push to get our allies into this game with us, right? Because like you were mentioning Mm -hmm. Russia and the whole for us, yeah, as consumers of gas from Russia, yeah, not so much. But Germany, were they holding out? Yeah, they were holding out. So this has to be, all these things, I think, have to be a bigger discussion, right? We created this. We created the World Trade Organization. These are, you know, constructs of governments. Now governments have to hold these parties accountable. And that's, and it can't be just the United States. But I do think over the course, you know, I'll just say it, over the course of the last few years, I do think there were some areas where the Trump administration hurt us diplomatically. And it's been really hard to get back to a place where we can be the leader that everybody jumps on board with, right, to really bring our allies along. So yeah, I think it's going to take some diplomacy work. Well, thanks for taking a tour of all aspects of uh, foreign and domestic policy. We always laugh when we interview people running for Congress, the scope of policy issues that you're supposed to have an opinion on is pretty amazing. It's far, it's far larger than I would say at the state level. But for our final, our final portion here, we, we, we want to talk about politics because the race you're running in, in the sixth congressional district is really a race unlike anything I've ever seen before. And our listeners will know we've interviewed Carrick Flynn. We've interviewed Matt West, the basic state of the race. And then I'm going to ask for your take is Carrick Flynn so you, we start, let's start with this. There's a bunch of people running. There's like 10 or 12 candidates running, two state legislators, a former county commissioner, a doctor, engineers, et cetera. We got a lot of different people running. And that's what it looked like at the beginning of the race. It was just sort of going to be a competitive primary with a lot of candidates. What has happened in the last couple of months is Carrick Flynn has attracted more outside independent expenditures from super PACs than any congressional race in the country. Alex actually reached out to Open Secrets and uh, one of their analysts told us that it was well over double the next closest congressional race. Wow. And that was back yeah, when- Yeah, and was- I actually want to clarify that a little bit too, Ben. I And I can check back on my notes and we can put this in the intro, but I believe that, and again, he can't confirm this, but I believe that might be in any congressional primary of all time because the 2000, the 2.5 million he was referencing was from 2018. So uh, just to add in that extra bit of context. Well, and, and we asked that question when the number was six. And according to what the Oregonian just put out, it's now closer to 9 million. So there's a lot of questions that I'm curious about embedded in this. I guess the first is what is, I mean, you know, you, you've raised a lot of money, but you haven't raised anywhere close <laughs> to that amount of money. So what is your sort of philosophy in this race where 
you're, I mean, there's no way you're going to get to $10 million in a primary in the next month. So how do you run your race given the unprecedented outside influence? Yeah. So for me, I just keep doing what I have always been doing, which is just kind of put my head down, reach out to, you know, individual donors in Oregon, you know, eight, you know, compared to, I think, Carrick Flynn's 2% of Oregon donors, mine is closer to 80% Mm -hmm. of my donors come from Oregon. For me, it is about building a groundswell of support from Oregonians, right? It's why I have over 90 elected officials, community leaders, and grassroots organizations supporting me. It's about getting that grassroots groundswell of support of the people here in Oregon who know my work, know that I've done the work, have worked alongside me, knocked on doors with me, right? Really been in the trenches to get different bills passed, you know, come out to testify, you know, helped me to write, you know, my own statements and, you know, figured out what policy positions I should take as a legislator, but also as an advocate. So for me, it is about the actual work and doing the work. And so, and I know that Oregonians do not like a outside influence and that voters really are turned off by all this money in politics, right? It's why I, you know, I tried to pass a really robust, comprehensive um, campaign finance reform bill at the state level last session, and it didn't pass. But you know, I think people were attracted to to trying to figure out something new because, yeah, voters just don't like money in politics. So I, t- I definitely agree that your I was, I'm on a couple of Facebook groups, which seems like a funny thing to be citing, but the chatter seems to be that there's growing, the people who support other candidates are basically saying, okay, it's between Flynn and Salinas. And the reason is, I think your greatest asset is to your point, like OLCV, Planned Parenthood, Pro-Choice Oregon, labor unions have all chosen you. It's going to be interesting, like, you know, what is what is $10 million buy you in a primary versus the support that you're talking about? My, my follow-up question, and you sort of alluded to this, on a policy level, A, my understanding is super PACs will continue to be able to do independent expenditures until the Supreme Court changes their decision, or there's a constitutional amendment, which seems very unlikely. So, is this just something we have to live with or are there other ways that, you know, outside of your race in particular, I think we, most of us agree, like outside spending, particularly at the scale we're talking about here is corrosive to democracy. So what can be done in the meantime? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know exactly at the federal level, what the restrictions are. I think the thing that is so um, frightening and egregious here and what a great term corrosive is this idea around dark money, right? That you don't even know who is behind the curtain, right? To actually prop up this, you know, phantom candidate, right? Who is actually, who is, you know, feeding the giant? I, you know, we don't know. And that feels scary when you don't know who is pouring money in, you don't actually know what their motivation is. And so what, what are you, what are, what are you trying to do here? And so, yeah, so I would say that disclosure transparency element, but I don't know if that's part of the court's prohibition. Mm, that's, I don't either. That's a good, that's a good observation. Um, quick follow-up before I go to Alex. The other development in the race that I think is unprecedented is House Majority PAC coming in and signaling a $1 million 
investment for Carrick Flynn as well. I think they may have walked that back in some way. It's it, I'm not super clear on what the latest on that is. But do you have any theories on what that was about with the House Majority Pact, the sort of like Pelosi aligned super PAC? No, again, you know, it's, you know, the House Majority PAC is a super PAC. And so we don't know, you know, who their donors are. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so, you know, there's been, you know, I think speculation, but I mean, really what it comes back to, I think, is who really is behind Carrick Flynn's donations, right? And we know that Sam Bankman Freed is a cryptocurrency billionaire. He's backing, you know, our crypto candidate. And really, I think there are a lot of questions about what he, what his motivations are. And, you know, and he's, you know, I think said on the record to Politico, he wants to influence a couple of these races around the nation in order to, to help influence what cryptocurrency regulation looks like. Right. So, um, yeah. So what house majority PAC did and why they did it when there are, you know, uh, well, like you said, nine, nine candidates here and four women and, the three women of color are the only ones who have held elected positions. This feels like a weird place for the House Majority Pact and truly a slap in the face to voters and volunteers for the House Majority Pact to put their thumb on the scale. And so that that leads to my last question, which is that if, if Carrick Flynn does move ahead and does win the primary, would you plan to support him or do you think there'll be kind of a splinter of support amongst Democrats just based on the, I guess I wouldn't call it an unprecedented scenario because something of this caliber has probably happened before. And then of course, Donald Trump kind of randomly won the presidency. So that was pretty crazy, <laughs> but just curious, obviously of, uh, I mean, I think you and basically every other candidate, if I'm not mistaken, put out a statement essentially calling out Carrick Flynn. Did you think there'll be splintering? And, you know, would you plan to support him if he was to move ahead in the primary? You know, right now, all I'm doing is, like I said, putting my head down, making sure that I run the best race possible for the people in this district. I keep going back to that because that's the only thing that actually makes me feel good. It's like, how can I deliver for these people? That means raising the money, you know, from Oregonians, making sure that I have the endorsements like, you know, Congresswoman Suzanne Bonamici, who has already represented 40% of this district, making sure that I have the grassroots support of OLCB, Planned Parenthood Action Fund, making sure that, you know, folks are involved and engaged and excited about my campaign because they know that I could be a voice for them in Congress. So that is truly all I am focusing on. I'm looking forward to May 17th, and then I'll move on from there. Well, Representative Salinas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I, you know, Alex and I are not journalists, so I will do my full disclosure. I have endorsed Representative Salinas in this race, and I hope that in this episode you can see why. I just think, like, for me, what you talked about at the beginning is the most important part of a member of Congress. Like, a member of Congress, especially a freshman member of Congress, is not going to go there and pass you know, substantial legislation that's going to change America forever, but they can, but if you know how to legislate and you know how to build relationships and you know how to cobble together coalitions, I think you can make a positive impact, even if it doesn't make headlines. And even if it isn't um, at the scale we need, at least we can make some progress. And I think your experience in Oregon has demonstrated that you, you can do that and do it pretty quickly. So that's my full disclosure. Don't want people to think, but we try to give everyone a fair shake uh, on the podcast. And I think, uh, I think we do that. So Thank you again for coming on. Our final question is, if people want to follow your campaign or support you or be in touch, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, you can go to andreasalinasfororegon.com. Perfect. All right, Representative Salinas, best of luck on the campaign trail, and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you to both of you. This is fun.